This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to the this Bite Size Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Thermo Fisher. Thermo Fisher Scientific leads the life sciences industry in single particle analysis workflow solutions, offering a comprehensive range of hardware and software. The solution provided guarantees exceptional throughput and superb data quality, leading to greater scientific insight and quicker understanding of the scientific question. Today's presentation is titled large volume serial block place electron microscopy imaging and is being presented by Dr. Graham Kidd from the Cleveland Clinic and Renovo Neural Inc. Graham Kidd obtained his PhD in Australia in 1988 and then did fellowships at Johns Hopkins and University of Queensland. He is now in the Department of Neurosciences at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. He also serves as scientific director of 3DEM at Renovo Neural Inc., a spinoff company, and, in, and is an adjunct professor at Case Western Reserve University. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen. I'll put them to Graham at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available within about 24 hours at bit.ly slash large volume EM that's bit.ly slash large volume EM, all one word, lowercase. So now over to you, Graham, for the presentation. Thanks very much. And I'd just like to welcome everybody uh, to this presentation. I genuinely wish you could all be here with me in Cleveland so that we could look around the table and chat um, and so that you could butt in and ask questions. But um, you're probably in sunnier places and so uh, please enjoy that. I'd like to talk a bit today about large volume imaging. Um, I should probably do my disclosures first though. So let me just head to those. Um, so as Amanda said, I'm uh, part of the Department of Neuroscience and some of the work at least that's being presented today was uh, done in Dr. Bruce Trapp's lab uh, with funding from the NIH and other organizations to him. I'm also scientific director for Renovo Neural, uh, which is a company that provides 3DM services as a fee-for-service offering. Uh, we've also had a lot of assistance from Thermo Scientific uh, company, FEI, and uh, for which we're very grateful. Uh, but I think all of those organizations would want me to emphasize that the opinions and perspectives that I'm going to present in this presentation today are really based on my own experiences uh, in multiple settings and across hardware platforms and don't represent um, necessarily their offerings, opinions, advice, or capabilities. That said, what I'd like to do today is provide a bit of an introduction um, and perhaps an ongoing resource for researchers that are interested in applying large volume serial block face imaging technologies in their labs, departments, and companies. So what I'm gonna do is provide a brief introduction uh, to what that technology involves, um, particularly uh, in terms of how it's high throughput these days, uh, what large volume actually means uh, in this context. I'd also like to provide some quantitative applications uh, so what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about our experiences studying axons and myelin and use that as example applications for what kinds of uh, approaches you might take uh, in a regular lab environment uh, and ways in which the three-dimensional component of all of this adds value. Finally, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about what it would take for your lab to get involved in doing this and talk a little bit about fixation, staining, uh, and daily operation. We were also going to try and add some references, uh, links to the video link um, that uh, Bite Size is providing, uh, so that you can come back later and review the video, uh, but also go and see the links that provide specific methods about um, how to do the staining, how to do some of those other things. 
So a lot of this has its origins in ancient history, which is the uh, manual serial sectioning approach for transmission EM. Electron microscopy since its inception in the 50s has been sort of the mainstay of a lot of cell biology and tissue biology work because it's really only electron microscopy that allows you to see into structures of cells like mitochondria, see inside axons and, and see other components of different cell systems. This is work that I did back in a long time ago and um, it made use of manual serial sectioning, which was the, the forerunner of these modern techniques that I'll be talking a bit about. Um, that approach used a ultramicrotome, uh, which was high technology back in those days. Someone had to sit and cut sections, and each of the sections was placed on a grid, which went into a transmission EM. And then somebody sat at the microscope for hours on end, finding individual structures that they were interested in. In this case, this is an axon with a myelin sheath around it, which is the dark um, structure that I, I, I'm hoping a lot of people are already familiar with. And we followed this structure along uh, through a second sheath that was produced uh, around it in order to show that the cell making this outer structure wasn't actually in contact with the axon. And since this was such a long time ago, the only easy way to really produce a three-dimensional three rendering of this was to do it manually by, by drawing it. And so this is my drawing from 1988, I think, uh, where we showed what one of these structures looked like completely reconstructed. It was an extremely arduous process to produce all of those sections, but it was worth it because the question that it was answering could only be answered that way, which was, does this outer cell have any contact at all with this axon that's in the center? And the answers turned out to be consistently no, but it took a lot of effort. Um, I'd like to say an exceptional graduate student, uh, a new ultramicrotome and some, a couple of good diamond knives. These days, however, there's been a, a small revolution in the kinds of imaging uh, that can produce similar kinds of results. So, um, many of them are based around scanning electron microscope approaches in which a piece of tissue shown here on a pin is stained with heavy metals prior to examining it and then mounted in a microscope, usually a scanning EM system for block face imaging. A beam scans across it, uh, producing an image using backscattered electrons that looks a lot like a transmission EM image. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail today, although I'll show a nice video in one second uh, that shows what this process looks like in action. But the net result is a stack of images that are a lot like the TEM images that I generated all those years ago um, by photographing them on negatives. However, these sets of data are much more useful than those sets of negatives ever were for, for people in the old days uh, for a variety of reasons, which I'll be talking about in a little while. So in practice, what this technology looks like, at least schematically, is that you have, let me start it again. You have your sample, you have an electron beam which scans across the surface, you have a detector which detects the electrons that come back from that surface, uh, in fact, from just beneath that surface. That builds up an image like this one, which looks a lot like the negatives that we used to have back in the good old days. You have very high resolution in that these are vesicles in synapses, which are about 50, 60 nanometers in diameter. You can resolve structures in mitochondria, the Christie structure, and other components. And with each pass of the, the beam and pass of the knife, you, you get more components, which then, or oh, more slices, which then go up to make up a stack. Now, this stack of images conceptually is a lot like the confocal 
image stacks that a lot of biologists are used to working with. And in a lot of ways, they can be treated the same way. We'll come back to that one. There are a lot of advantages of the serial block face approach. One is that, and, and for me it's a big one, is that the ultra microterm is already built into the scanning EM chamber. This is what the microscope looks like here. You can just see it in the background of these uh, exceptionally gifted electron microscopists. Uh, Emily's here looking at me, that's her there. Um, but the, the unit itself is not a very large structure. Um, it has the ultra microtome built into it, which means that the two or three months worth of developing exceptional skills in um, ultra microtomy are not really required anymore. Now, and you don't actually need your own ultra microtome as well, which is a, a considerable expense. This, to me, is one of the biggest advantages because it just means that you don't have to be part of an electron microscopy lab already to be able to take advantage of this technology. Uh, you don't need somebody to train you in how to use the, the diamonds, how to use the ultra microtome, because it's all just part of the system and the ultra microtome itself is computer controlled. Second, because it's a lot like confocal microscopy, conceptually, it's not that hard to get involved with. You can use some of the same software that you use for confocal microscopy, although the, there's better software available. But you don't necessarily have to come from an EM background or have spent a lot of time looking at electron micrographs. Now, it does help if you have, and it's certainly you're going to have to spend some time looking at EM, uh, figuring out how to do it. But, you know, it's not uh, the huge learning curve for getting into transmission EM uh, isn't there for this. The other thing is that. This system produces reproducible and repeatable results. So what would have taken me three or four months to do back in the good old days is, is a one-night imaging run these days using our Tenio system. That means that I can not only look at the results from a couple of animals, but, but I can look at a large set of animals, 10 or 15, in order to get statistically meaningful results. And that's a huge advantage because previously doing this kind of imaging was something that you only did for very difficult questions, but now it's a routine assay technique. And, and finally, I'd suggest that the technology is reasonably affordable. Um, the, the cost of a system is probably comparable to a multi-photon or something like that. The sort of thing that individual labs can share or the, that can be obtained through a core. Um, the methods... Uh, the instruments themselves are actually very versatile in that uh, particularly uh, with some of the um, newer systems, it's very, very easy to swap the stage out and image bio-SEM samples uh, or other materials in a shared environment where you've got engineers using the same technology. And those are large advantages when you're putting together a grant and thinking about getting involved in this. Another advantage, of course, is that as technology's moved on, we've been able to look at bigger and longer samples, um, obtain images from more regions of interest per sample as uh, scanning is going on. You can look at multiple samples at the same time uh, or use those capabilities for obtaining shorter runs. There are also uh, newer capabilities for obtaining virtual slices, which uh, can take your the resolution in the Z direction uh, way beyond the levels that are normally obtained with a, a, just a single pass diamond knife imaging. And these are all things that I'm sure the people at Thermo Fisher would be very happy to talk to you about and um, uh, or um, you can send me questions. So large volume imaging uh, is a very relative term. I was in Seattle uh, recently and talking with Nuno um, DeCosta, who is part of the Allen Foundation, and they're making large volume images for use in um, uh, connectomics. 
And he was saying that uh, one sample that they'd been running uh, produced about two petabytes of data. That's that's a fairly large amount of data. Our entire institute's um, server system is probably, uh, it's twice that, but um, I would be in trouble if I tried to fill that up. And so, you know, large volume is a relative term. It certainly includes those things, but most of the data sets that we're working with are probably under 100 gigabytes. Uh, and again, that's the kind of thing that you can do on a lot of computer systems that uh, people would have in their labs, or, or certainly without a huge expense. And it doesn't require massive amounts of programming skills, but it does, you know, require somebody that has some interest in uh, doing these sorts of things. There's a couple of different technologies that I just should mention. Uh, the one I've talked about is the block face um, serial imaging in which a diamond knife comes in and, and cuts off the surface of the block. But there's also uh, a similar technique in which uh, called focused iron beam SEM imaging uh, in which a second beam, a gallium iron beam is used to polish away the surface of the block. Finally, uh, as I was saying about um, uh, the Allen Foundation and Nuno system, uh, there are uh, transmission EM systems with automated mechanisms for generating enormous volumes of material. Um, and uh, But those are really probably beyond, uh, certainly the scope of what I'm talking about today, which is the kind of thing that individual labs can do. The difference between each of those uh, is, is simply this. So a focused iron beam sample would be this small block down here, uh, which is about 50 microns wide. It's, it was a great technique. It continues to have a lot of utility. But it, once you start to look at larger cells or larger tissues, it's nice to have the larger block face areas that you can get from um, the serial block face imaging. This just shows the first generation systems uh, which we still have a couple of in, in use. And this was a block about 300 microns long. And we were just so happy uh, that we were larger than the FIB system that we were um, very excited by that. But this is the size of the samples that we're able to cut with the current technology. We can't image all of that at highest possible resolution because uh, just the scanning time would take a long time. But to be able to hone in on a region here and a region over here, another region over here, for example, and another region up here at high resolution, and also be able to combine that into the low resolution. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Solution image that we've got is, is really very useful. So I'd like to move on to examples of the kinds of things that you can do with these data sets, because it's all well and good to have them and make pretty pictures, but what kinds of utility is there? And so, as I mentioned, we're interested in studying um, particularly Renovo, myelin, and diseases of myelin. Renovo as uh, part of the company's offerings, um, tests uh, drugs for their efficacy in um, producing remyelination in a demyelinating model. This is a toxic demyelination model. Uh, it's the cuprazone model. And you basically treat the animals with cuprazone, allow them to eat it. It causes demyelination of some structures within the brain. Um, you can see this is an intact brain. Uh, this is after cuprazone treatment. You can see, and it's stained for myelin proteins, and you can see that most of this insulative material that surrounds axons uh, within the brain has been removed from particularly of interest from structures like the corpus callosum, which is the white matter connection between the two hemispheres of the brain, and within the hippocampus as well, which are these lobes here. And the question that we always have is whether drug treatment can promote faster and fuller remyelination compared with the uh, vehicle alone. Now, obviously, simple staining of, of tissues like this can tell us a fair bit. 
uh, staining at high resolution light microscopy using plastic sections and stain for toluidine blue can also provide a fair bit of information. But the axons in these mouse brains that cross between the two hemispheres are very small diameter. Uh, the smallest uh, is about 0.3 microns, which can have myelin around it. There are smaller axons as well, uh, and they range up to a couple of microns in diameter. So that really, 0.3 microns is about the limit of light resolution. And when you get factor into it that the axons are organized a bit like a bowl of spaghetti, uh, it requires both three-dimensional components for, for understanding what's going on and better than light microscopy. So looking at them by confocal microscopy or um, uh, methods like that is, is helpful, but it's not going to get the job done. So I just wanted to show a couple of slices from a stack of images that we got from corpus callosum. So these structures are demyelinated axons. Uh, these are the nuclei of the cells that are uh, both maintaining the tissue and also cleaning up the debris of the myelin. Uh, you can see a little bit of debris and you can see a swelling, which is uh, part of one of the axons that's accumulated debris within it, which is a normal facet of demyelinating diseases. A big advantage is that you can just step backwards and forwards through these stacks using ImageJ or similar software. And this was just a set of three or four slices, but you can imagine following structures through 500 slices. I also point out this is a very small part of what was a much larger block. This is, probably is about 50, 60 microns wide from a block that was 200 microns wide, about um, 40 microns deep, uh, containing 500 slices, and it was about 60 microns wide. And this is a standard uh, arrangement that we use for analyzing this tissue. So this allows us to both visualize and count the number of axons that are present that are large enough to have myelin on them. We can observe the pathology that's happening. And this becomes much easier, of course, if you start to zoom into the stack. And this just shows a, a small region of one of those stacks in which we're zooming in to see higher structure of some of the components. Um, these images are just a little bit fuzzy because um, we emphasize speed over um, absolute high resolution so that we could do more samples in a shorter amount of time and, and cover more cells. Uh, in particular, that answers the questions that we have, which is how many things are myelinated and so on. But the real utility comes from not just having a few slices to look at, but to be able to reconstruct these structures in 3D. And this just shows the myelin sheaths or the, the myelin internodes, um, which are projecting from a, a block uh, of sample. This shows the results of demyelination and remyelination. You can see that there are very few of these black myelinated axons present within this tissue. And when we threshold them out, just by using very simple density thresholding, you can see that there's a few of these myelinated fibers still present in the demyelinated system, which is, which is normal, and they may not have been removed by this time. But certainly after recovery, there's a lot more myelin present within the tissue. You can use these stacks for other things as well as just looking at the myelin. And I'll talk a little bit more about the myelin in a second. Um, so you can also threshold out the debris and start to look at the debris burden, which is present in tissues. So many drugs that promote remyelination are also affecting the immune system and altering their capabilities for clearing debris out of the tissue uh, or preventing damage to the myelin that's there. And so knowing how much debris you've got is a useful thing. By thresholding it out, and then just by measuring the volume of the thresholded regions, shown here in green and blue, you can get very useful data about how much, how fast, how rapidly the changes within the tissue are happening. But the other thing that you can do with these slices is also shown here, which is that 
by doing some simple counting, you can step backwards and forwards through the stack, label up cells of interest, in this case, astrocytes and macrophages, and put numbers on how many of those cells are present within the tissue. And this reconstruction just shows the position of astrocytes. The little bar represents um, labeling over the nucleus of each one and look for um, both their density and their associations with other cells. And the reason that you can do this is in, in particular in a confusing and conflicting environment like the central nervous system is because you don't have to get everything right with each cell in each slice. So for instance, this astrocyte, when you look at it in detail uh, in that one slice, there's really not too much that distinguishes it from other cells within the brain. It could be any kind of glial cell if you didn't know any better. But by following it through three-dimensional stacks, you quickly come upon the um, filament-rich processes that also contain glycogen, which are the, the two things that really distinguish astrocytes from other cells within the CNS. And so having the three-dimensionality allows you to follow these cells along. So those are two relatively simple uses. A third, though, involves not just following things in single dimensions through the, or single planes through the 3D stack, but actually following them as they tunnel and twist and turn through the stack. So this is a slice through uh, one axon that was followed through uh, one of the stacks that I was showing earlier. You, the axon's shown in orange. The node of Ronvier is shown by these two arrows here. And the dark stretch along is the myelinated fiber, which is shown here in higher magnification below. So the myelin is the black stuff, and the axon is the white region through the center. And you can also make out a couple of mitochondria within this cell. At higher magnification, you can look at the nodal structure and use this kind of information to, to ask questions about how well remyelination is occurring within these tissues, whether there have been pathological effects of drugs, which, which is entirely possible. There are a range of um, myelin deficits that can occur when myelin overgrows nodes of Ronvier because through, through overstimulation, or where myelin thicknesses become so large that um, they become pathological. Or in some cases, you could have very thin myelin that never uh, produces an appropriate thickness. And this is a method that allows you to look at all of that. But the other thing that you really get out of this data is the ability to measure the internodal length. That's the distance between the two nodes for the myelin as it's growing. This is a metric that we use a lot, but was never, before this technology, it was never possible to get these numbers very easily because in cutting a single slice through this tissue, the odds on having an entire uh, myelinated segment present was very small. For large axons and peripheral nerve, this has been a technique that people have used for a very long time to assess remyelination. But within the central nervous system, there was just no way to do it. But now it, it can be a sort of routine technique uh, making virtual T-fiber preparations. And it's provided us with uh, a unique data set that's been very useful. Um, the other thing that you can also do, because this is three-dimensional data, is also re-slice these axons at regular intervals along to assess the transverse um, axon diameter and myelin thickness. The ratio of the axon diameter to the myelin thickness is, is something that's very characteristic. Normal, normally, it's somewhere between 0 0.6, 0 0.7, uh, 0.75, something in that zone. And it's, that's a ratio that doesn't change regardless of whether the axon gets larger or smaller. The myelin always stays the same proportionate amount of thickness um, compared with the axon. And so, so from the 3D data sets, we're able to get the traditional measurements. We're able to get new T-fiber 
um, type measurements of, of endonodal length. We're also able to zoom in and assess the structures of nodes of Ronvier, all while remyelinations occurring in these tissues. I produced some very interesting results. We, when we looked at the G ratios for remyelination within a, a series of um, experiments, so this just shows wild type, uh, actually this is the wild type tissue that's untreated. This is completely demyelinated. This is three weeks after of remyelination occurring spontaneously. And this is after six weeks of remyelination. And you can see that the myelin's coming back. The funny thing is, when we looked at the tradi traditional measurement of G ratios, there was no real difference between any of the groups. Um, that is, that the G ratio stayed around about the same. That wasn't the case for endonodal length, however, and it was very, you could readily distinguish those that were remyelinating from those that were um, substantially remyelinated and those that had not uh, begun, to, uh, those that hadn't been treated. And part of the reason for this turned out to be that, again, these fibers are very, very small. And when we plotted from the cross sections, the G ratio versus axonal diameter values, what we found was that for these small fibers, the tradition or the, the usual G ratio uh, linear relationship between myelin thickness and axon diameter just didn't hold out below about one micron in diameter. And this is looking through the literature, a problem that was known to exist um, and uh, makes using this value not all that useful at low um, for, for these small diameter fibers. The other thing that we were particularly interested and that may interest a lot of uh, people listening are the intracellular organelles, mitochondria, endoplasmic reticulum, and particularly their interaction. This shows a normal axon, a mitochondrion in it, and these little thread-like things are the endoplasmic reticulum. Just looking at them, even highlighting them by coloring them in, doesn't really give you a good feel for their structural organization, because these are very three-dimensional organelles. But when you trace them all out or threshold them all out, and then do a projection, which is the kind of thing that you do with confocal image stacks, you can see that the endoplasmic reticulum is really organized as a large network of interconnected threads, uh, which are continuous along the, axons, uh, along the axon. Now, we were interested in a, another model of myelin pathology, whether or not changes in the myelin would have an effect on the axon and particularly on the mitochondria and endoplasmic reticulum organizations. What you can see sort of in summary, uh, because this work is published and um, I'll add the link uh, for the uh, final version of the uh, presentation, but um, you can see that there are some mitochondria here in adjacent to this nodal region located here uh, that are swollen and distended in contrast with the cigar-shaped elongated mitochondria that you see in wild type. The, this is shown when you three-dimensionally reconstruct them in multiple colors, that close to the node, you've got a large number of mitochondria that are, that are swollen in the mutant, which is this P0CNS animal uh, compared with wild type. This became even more interesting once we started to look at them in detail because the mitochondrion wild type had extensions of the outer uh, mitochondrial membrane. When we looked at their association with endoplasmic reticulum, it was clear that they were interacting directly, uh, or at least making contact with this outer region. And it, it effectively increased the potential interface between mitochondria and the endoplasmic reticulum in these optic nerve axons. Uh, by about 60%. In contrast, in the myelin mutant, the mitochondria were um, had balled up and become rounded, and the endoplasmic reticulum around them was also distended, um, disrupted, fragmented, and had lost all of the continuity that 
seem to be important within normal axons. And since the endoplasmic reticulum is involved in both uh, calcium modulation and other events uh, involving uh, ion buffering and signaling within the cell, and also potentially involved with uh, mitochondrial fission and fusion, this seemed a particularly important observation. When we looked at different ages, uh, and I'll just summarize this very quickly, the green shows wild type, the orange shows uh, the mutant. Um, it can be seen that the mitochondrial lengths, mitochondrial diameters were affected from the earliest time points that we looked at of about one month of age, up to, uh, and, and that continued uh, until about three months, uh, through to six months when you start to see neurological deficits in these animals. And that coincided with about the time of myelination um, and remained effective until um, a phenotype developed. But the total volume of each of the mitochondria seemed to be uh, relatively the same. So they were rounded up, they lost their length, but they were still about the same volume. And this suggests perhaps interactions with the microtubule network or something else that provides mitochondria with their shape as being affected in this situation. I'd like just to uh, put up a couple of other papers that um, show the utility of this technique. I'm not going to go into any detail with any of these, but they're, they're really just to make the case that Serial block face imaging in the literature is, is something that's reasonably well established that people have been using and, and is well regarded and um, certainly something that you can get involved with. And so, in conclusion to that section, and I'll just talk in a second for about another 10 minutes about how to do this, but the conclusions, you know, these image stacks that you can get using this kind of microscopy provide confocal-like imaging of structures that are way too small to resolve by light microscopy. You get the 3D data sets, which are useful in many ways and, and can provide a network view of cells, both their interactions with one another and also the structure of the mitochondria as a network within the cell, the structure of the ER as, as um, a network within the cell. Um, they also provide new ways to measure um, uh, improvements or um, what am I trying to say? Uh, um, efficacy of drugs that are meant to affect particular structures within uh, tissues, model tissues. Uh, and the automation that's inherent in serial block face imaging uh, really makes EM, this kind of EM accessible to labs that aren't traditionally EM oriented. And as, as advances keep coming along, um, we're getting bigger fields, faster imaging, thinner slices, um, also new staining and tracking uh, reagents. And so, I'd like to talk just a little bit about this, about how do you get your lab involved, what's required to actually get it set up going. And I just have this one slide to talk to um, because I just want to touch on some of the details and not go into great detail about it because for one thing, time's passing. And for the second, a lot of it's the sort of thing that you need to get from um, papers and and um, uh, and also we'll be having some workshops in the future which will go into it in much more practical detail. But what I'd like to say first is about the tissue itself. So this little piece of tissue on the end of what's a three millimeter stretch of wire is the sample that's being imaged. It's a piece of brain and um, it's collected by conventional electron microscopy fixation. So that's glutaraldehyde perfusion for preference. The fixation and the staining are probably the two most critical things that affect the outcome of serial block face imaging. Because if you don't have extremely high contrast staining of your tissue, you won't see the structures that are there with this scanning uh, approach. And that's a lot more um, heavy metal, a lot more staining 
than is normally used in conventional transmission EM. Because, of course, there you cut a section, but then you stain it afterwards with lead and uranium to give the, the, that individual section as contrast. In this case, you've got to block stain the tissue, which is a process that takes a couple of days. Um, the stains are the same ones that, or mostly the same ones that have been traditionally used for TEM in the past, which are osmium tetroxide, which people often use for enhancing DAB staining. Um, our method would be, say, an hour in osmium, uh, ferrocyanide, um, an hour, uh, half an hour in TCH, which is a chemical that opens up the membranes, an hour or so in osmium tetroxide again, overnight uh, in urinal acetate, washes in between all of those steps, and, and then Walton's lead solution. And this is the method that um, Tom Deering and uh, Mark Ellisman's group put together um, some time ago. And with small variations, it, it's, it's the fundamental method that I think most people use um, one way or another. It's a method that puts a lot of stain into the tissue and um, allows you to get back decent images. If you don't get enough stain into the tissue, then of course you have problems with, not just with being able to make images, but also with charging up of the tissue that obscures features and makes imaging difficult. Now, most of those reagents, um, people may be sitting there listening and saying, you know, we're not having uranium in the lab, but they're all relatively easy to access through companies like EMS uh, and others that supply reagents for normal uh, electron microscopy suppliers. Uh, they're also the sort of thing that you might find downstairs in your imaging core if you've got an EM system present. And those folk can easily help um, with the staining methods because the protocols themselves are not very difficult. It's, it's very much bucket chemistry. And as I say, we'll probably be running a work, or we will be running a workshop um, later uh, in October uh, for anybody that's especially interested in finding out about this. The other thing that I just want to touch on before we finish up is what to do with the images. How do we go through them physically? What software? Um, and so many of the studies that you've seen have been done just with open source software. Um, image J works really well. Uh, we've used Reconstruct, which Kristen Harris's group put, or um, John Fiala put together um, several years ago, which still works extremely well and is a great way to trace things up, get them into other applications. In addition to that, if you've got um, um, greater needs or you, you want more automation or less user hands-on uh, involvement, then there's other software such as Amira, which allows, uh, which provides professional quality um, image production, and also provides a lot of measuring and measurement facilities and capabilities that um, you might have to work at to uh, use with other structures. Finally, so so you know, there's a range of options and. To begin with, at least, if you're just getting interested in doing this, um, you can use whatever uh, software you've been using for confocal imaging, or most likely taking the TIFF images that are produced by this technology. I just wanted to touch very briefly on the future and where that's headed, which is um, the development of new staining techniques and new staining protocols. and um, uh, just two of those which are you'll hear of in the future um, are placental alkaline phosphatase staining, which is a genetic technique for labeling up cells of interest. So in particular, the um, um, uh, if you're introducing stem cells into a system, or if you've already got a phlox gene uh, that you're interested in, you can breed them to rosomice that have the uh, placental alkaline phosphatase, and that produces an ectoenzyme that sits on the outer surface, outer plasma membrane of the cells that you've labeled and provides uh, a dense layer of um, staining around the outside of those. 
Now, the method for that's um, a little more complicated uh, for, for doing the staining than um, our regular method, uh, but there'll be a link for it associated with this video. And the other thing is immunostaining, which in a couple of guises can be used to label up cells of interest and go and identify them. Uh, one of those is using um, fluorescent labeled material and then coming back and looking at the EM of that. Second is to look at, um, uh, is to use just DAB staining, which may only stain the very outer surfaces of the tissue, but then you can follow cells from that region through deeper into the block. So, I, you know, I hope in the half hour or so that we've taken that I've given you just a little bit of an inkling as to what it's like to do these kinds of experiments. I, I hope that you can see that it's the kind of thing that if you've done confocal or done other techniques, you can get involved in. The technology itself is fairly robust. Um, most labs could take, um, oh, most labs I think could make use of this kind of approach and the instruments themselves don't need to be, um, you know, especially treated. There are some constraints on where you can put them, but um, but it's not like back in the old days where they had to be in the basement on their own concrete slab. Uh, all of our instruments are on the third floor of relatively newly built buildings, and um, uh, you know there are methods for dampening vibrations and those kinds of things. Uh, so, so it's technology that's, I, I believe, very accessible, very useful, uh, provides great quantitative data, and um, is it really just beginning to uh, get a lot of traction uh, with, with labs that have not been traditionally uh, involved with a lot of electron microscopy. And so I'd just like to finish up and say thank you. My acknowledgement slide fell out of this presentation, but um, I would like to thank Gabriella uh, Kiss from uh, Thermo. Um, I'd like to thank Amanda and all of the people at BiteSize. And uh, I'd like to thank Emily, um, Deandra, and others at Renovo Neural that generated some of the data that I presented. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Bruce Trapp and the lab across there for, for a lot of the other data that was generated. and. Um, I'd like to thank you for listening in, and we'll now take any questions that might have arisen. Thanks, Graham. That was an excellent presentation. We do have a few questions from the audience, and if anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So our first question comes from Ali, and they ask, um, what is the minimum thickness of a section that could be cut and provided using um, the FIB stem? and SBF SAM te techniques, respectively. That's good. Um, so the serial block face SEM approach, we usually will cut about 50 nanometers, but we can go down to 30, uh, particularly with a new diamond. And um, a lot of folk operate in that sort of zone. You can go up to about 200 uh, for cutting sections uh, if you need to crank through the tissue. But in addition to that, the volume scope system that we have also has uh, the capacity to do virtual slicing um, by using multiple uh, different energies um, and deconvolving the, um, the slices back to um, uh, sub-slices, if you like. And that can produce, I think, routinely 10 nanometer slices, uh, but I know I've got friends, Sharon Fraze, who I should have mentioned, uh, that, that, that have done better than that. So that's cutting with diamond, That's and with the addition of being able to image multiple KVs. With the FIB system, of course, you can cut the, as, as thin as you like, so you can go down to you know a couple of nanometers uh, worth of polishing if you're prepared if, if that's of interest to you. I think most people are cutting around about 10 um, when they're doing that, or or when we were doing it in the past, we we sort of we were cutting about 40 nanometer slices anyway. Uh, it's a question of what you're trying to resolve, really. And so um, if 
if you're looking at the finest details of smooth endoplasmic reticulum, then you may need to, to polish very thin sections through and reconstruct that. Um, but if you're trying to reconstruct you know, a much larger network in axons, then um, you don't need that kind of thing, uh, thickness. Great. That's a great answer. Um, so Paul asks, are your backscatter images from one region of interest or did you use stitching to put together multiple ROIs into one larger atlas, but at a higher magnification than a single ROI would allow? And um, then again, he's got a second question about um, what magnification or voxel resolution do you, do you typically achieve? Um, the answer to all of that depends on the question that you're trying to ask of your data set. And so, if you're sampling uh, in general and want to see multiple regions with multiple cells in them, uh, then you might have separate independent ROIs. If you want high resolution of local regions, um, then uh, but for longer structures, then you might stitch. Okay. Um, and uh, stitching, uh, again, is something that, you know, in the early days it was it looked terrible. These days, uh, with a lot of samples, it's, it's seamless. But the big advantage is less distortion around the, the rim um, and uh, high resolution. That's uh, sorry, what was the second question? Um, and then what magnification or voxel resolution did you typically achieve? Um, usually, again, it's a compromise and it depends on what you're trying to look at uh, because the larger you can make your voxels, the the faster you can get through mm -hmm. your tissue. Um, the smaller you make them, the, the slower the scan and the more um, uh, issues with charging and those kinds of things you have. So, so our smallest is around about five nanometers per pixel mm -hmm. in the X and Y direction. And then um, we estimate about the interaction volume is probably about 30 nanometers using the standard settings that we would use. Uh, like the standard KV settings, mm -hmm. which determine how deep into the tissue the electrons go. Um, but using the um, multi-KV system, uh, you, you can get down, uh, you know, a 10 by 10 by 10 wow. uh, voxel is doable. Uh, and again, that's not something that we've actually ended up doing a lot of, mm -hmm. uh, because for us, the question is, you know, how much can we see? How many examples of things can we see? Not, um, you know, can we see these couple of things in very high resolution? But for correlative approaches where people are looking to see the interaction between two individual cells, uh, it, it's worth going to those resolutions. That makes sense. Um, David asks, are there efforts to extend the, um, extend the extensive heavy metal staining to samples that have been high pressure frozen? Uh, yes, I, th I I don't know too much about that, but um, um, high pressure freezing is is a relatively routine technique, I think, in in mm -hmm. several labs. Particularly if you're if uh, you know you you're very interested in um, subcellular structure, and um, so so yes is the answer. Okay. And then Nash asks if there's cons resolution concerns or limitations between the SBFI, so the serial block casing, and the focused ion beam regarding resolution and other aspects of that. Um, I think they're both very similar technologies. They're both built on the idea of detecting backscattered uh, electrons. The mm -hmm. focused ion beam systems work at high res uh, uh, higher vacuums, I think, uh, and so they have a, a little edge in resolution. But to be honest, in, in our hands, the difference hasn't been huge. If we're looking at vesicles and structures like that, um, mm -hmm. where we need to see them at, at high resolution, the, the difference between at least the, the fibs that we've had access to and um, um, a good new serial block phase system, um, it, you know, it, it's not a huge difference. Okay. And then I have a question from Debbie, and this one's a little bit long, but it makes sense at the end. She says that it's easy to see the application to neural systems and also to biological organisms where 3D images of organelles, cells, and tissues are desired. 
However, can you give an example uh, or examples of material systems where 3D imaging was also very beneficial? And then she asks also about what type of preparation would be required if material if the material is made up of low atomic number elements? So yes is the answer. Okay. The um, and and I'll talk a little bit about it, perhaps without mentioning the specific example. Um, <laughs> um, but there are some plastic structures that have, or, or not plastic, but PDF, uh, PGDF related materials and mm -hmm. um, those things which have pore structures within them uh, that people have um, successfully imaged using this technology very well. So I think anything that's soft, soft enough to be cut by a diamond will work just mm -hmm. fine. We embedded uh, those kinds of samples in regular embedding resin. We didn't stain them. And what we found was that the difference between the resin and the material itself was sufficient. There was sufficient contrast just in the inherent, probably charging um, artifact a little, uh, that was enough to give us a signal, uh, quite a decent signal, um, so that we didn't have to go to variable pressure or, or um, you know, low pressure imaging, which is something mm -hmm. that I haven't talked about here, but uh, is often used in, for biological samples when um, the staining's not as good or when the staining is very sparse. Uh, so in our hands, uh, yeah, we were just able to embed the stuff directly into embedding resin without doing the three-day staining technique. The imaging didn't look all that pretty necessarily, but with a little bit of post-image um, processing, a uh, little bit of Gaussian blurring and then some thresholding, um, that was a little more clever than we'd normally use with well-contrasted material. Uh, it was very readily uh, possible to get quite good usable images uh, from which we were then able to calculate pore sizes and um, internal structures and connectivities and those kinds of things. Uh, and if Debbie's particularly interested in our experiences with that, um, you know, she should send us an email. Okay. Um, we can go into more detail about that, but um, it may not work for every sample probably depends a lot on the sample. Uh, the embedding in plastic part might destroy a lot of samples that people are trying to get in. So, you know, it's, it's not a given, um, but it certainly can be done. Cool. And then we have a question from, um, I think it's Kayla. And she asks, what happens to the section that is cut off within the chamber and does it affect the, does it affect the vacuum? Um, so yeah, I, I actually, I, that, that's a question that we often get. Um, the, the section goes somewhere. Usually we hope it follows gravity and heads toward the bottom of the chamber and away from the, um, uh, imaging elements. Uh, there's also places on the stage that, that tend to accumulate the sections. Um, and again, we hope that, that, you know, they fall off the knife at the end of the knife's travel and go into a place where they're not part of the imaging uh, system. Um, don't know that uh, what proportion go into the vacuum system, but that, that hasn't been a problem. Uh, mm -hmm. Where it is a problem is when the sections adhere to the uh, pole piece or to a detector, um, and then they affect stigmation in a very characteristic way, and you get error messages from the system. Um, and, and fortunately, the new system, um, it stops cutting once that happens. Okay. Uh, and so you're able to fix it and get mm -hmm. back to work. Okay. And then we have another question from Cheng. Does the drift thermal or mechanical correction similar be so is the I think it's is the drift thermal or mechanical correction similar between the SBF diamond knife and the FibSem? Um I think uh, so if the question's getting at, do you get damage to the surface of the block as you're imaging it that affects the quality of the images, um, then I think the damage is probably going to be around about the same between the two imaging systems. Mm -hmm. With the diamond, we when we come to cut, if the se section surface is damaged, then sometimes the knife will skip across the surface. And so one of the things that you set up when you first start imaging is, is how thick you can cut versus how thick you want to cut. 
versus how long you're imaging for and so how much damage you cause. And you sort of trade off against those two things um, to get cutting. With a fib system, um, on one hand, you don't have the knife skipping and artifacts from that, mm -hmm. and you can control polishing a lot better. Um, but I, it's a while since we've done it, but um, you did see artifacts and um, other issues that were analogous to that curtaining uh, and other kinds of problems uh, that occurred with the block face that also would, would cause trouble with that. Now, that, that may have been worked out these days, um, and so um, uh, it may not be as big a problem as it used to be. Um, but, you know, both technologies have their, their constraints. Okay, and then I think we've got one last question, and this is from um, um, this is from Cindy, and she asks, "How do you determine when you need to change your knife, your the diamond knife?" Um, so we clean them okay. um, a lot more than we um, change them. When it's time to change one, usually you see scratches across the surface of the block, which mm -hmm. don't don't always turn up in the images themselves. This is a very forgiving technology when it comes to diamond that knives. But we also keep two diamond knives on the go. So we've got one that we use for um, um, rougher sorts of samples and, and one that we keep for doing uh, very thin cuts uh, that doesn't get used for anything else. Um, in general, I guess it's probably about two years. Okay. Um, uh, but but again, depending on your use and depending upon how much you need fine resolution, you may want to change them more frequently than that. Okay, um, we do have two more questions that came in. Yeah, so um, this is from Paul, and this kind of I think goes along with that. Um, how do diamond might how do diamond knife marks if they exist show up in your three D volumes after reconstruction? Generally, we you know if I can be fair, I just don't see them all that often. I'm TEM trained, and so where you had scratches in the knife, you, you've got very bad damage. Mm -hmm. um, the sections are split and do all of that. To, to actually see them, you, you've kind of got to squint hard to look at them. And that's, that's the nature of the imaging. If you remember the video earlier, um, the backscattered electrons are collected from almost directly above the sample, and that produces sort of very little topographical um, information about the surface. So you can have a little furrow through the surface and, and not even notice that it's there unless you're looking for, um, you know, characteristic changes that, that are in that zone. Uh, so when you come to do through the reconstructions, um, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's not a big problem. Unless your knife's really wrecked, but, you know, try, try <laughs> not to do that. You've noticed that. <laughs> And then we have a question from David. And so he asks, must XY resolution decrease with energy deconvolution? Um, I don't know what the, what the, the uh, sort of ultimate limits are on mm -hmm. doing deconvolution. Um, I think that uh, those people that use it uh, have, have said 10 nanometers is around about what they can comfortably do reproducibly a lot, but I don't think that's the limit at all. I think um, you can go down, um, I think people at, at um, uh, one of the other institutes said that they were doing seven, uh, and I wouldn't be a bit surprised that if, you know, on, the, on a good day, you, you could get less than that. Mm -hmm. but, but, um, but again, let me just stress, you know, I'm not the manufacturer. Um, Gabriella would be the person to ask about those things and um, uh, can give you uh, probably more um, salient information. Great. So we'll, David will have Gabriella follow up with you after this or somebody from Fisher can follow yeah. up with you. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'd encourage anybody that's interested mm -hmm. in doing this to, to talk to them because, um, um, you know, these are my experiences with the system that, that we, uh, we, aren't testing the systems to see absolutely all that they can do. Mm -hmm. we, we tend to test them in the other capacity, which is to see how fast they can go, how <laughs> big the samples can be, um, how many things you can cram together, uh, but, but not necessarily what the finest resolution is or what the, um, uh, you know, the, the 
sort of highest quality images uh, can be, because that's not our gig. Right. Yes, and they should know, they probably have put their instruments through the ringer to figure yeah. out what they can do. <laughs> and, you know, um, Ken does a great job up there in Nanaport in mm -hmm. uh, making beautiful images. And, um, um, you know, those guys know the answers to those questions. Well, I think this brings us to the end of the seminar. So thank you again, Graham, for a very illuminating presentation and a wonderful discussion. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me and thanks to everybody for, for tuning in. And I hope that it um, uh, has stimulated you to want to go out and try it. Yeah, thanks it did me. <laughs> so, and I want to thank our sponsor, Thermo Fisher. And Absolutely. again, I want to thank everybody in the audience for taking the time to attend and listen in. And if you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the webinar page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Thermo Fisher and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.